Let's all stand together at this time as we reverence the reading of God's Word. We're going to be looking again this morning in Colossians chapter 1, a message I began last week. We're looking at Christianity, a biblical view. And the second message is believing. A, a biblical Christian is defined by what we believe, believing, believing. Colossians 1.21, And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight, if indeed you continue in the faith grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. And may God bless the reading of his word today is my prayer. You may be seated. The apostle was encouraging the people at Colossae so long ago and through them to us. This truth passes down. As he calls on us to consider the fact that one day we're going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and give an account. And as a faithful pastor and shepherd, Paul was concerned about his people because he wanted them to be able to stand before the Lord uh, without reproach. And that is not receiving a rebuke. That's one place. I mean, it was bad. I mean, really, really bad when your dad had to look at you maybe and say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm ashamed of you, son. Oh, that was so bad. I'd rather him whip me a dozen times than say that. I'm ashamed of you. As hard as that hit us, imagine what it would be to stand before the Lord Jesus and Him have to rebuke us. It's not, you see, about our salvation because we are saved. If you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've received Him as your Savior, then you're saved. Your salvation, your eternal destiny is is not in question. That is settled by the blood of Jesus Christ who cleanses us from all our sins. But he tells us then how to stand before the Lord without reproach, without rebuke, blameless. And that is if we continue in the faith. Grounded and steadfast. And that faith in this passage, in that concept, the faith, it speaks of uh, that body of, of Christian truth. The truth that Jesus said, of which Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words, my words shall not pass away. The, the truth that Jesus embodied in the Great Commission when he said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all things. All things whatsoever I have commanded you. I remind you this morning as I have uh, every week in this series that no one is born a Christian. You must become a Christian. That's why Jesus so famously said you must be born again. Then we remember that the Apostle Paul placed a high value on believing as it relates then to what we call the faith and seeing Christianity as a system of beliefs. And if we're going to consider Christianity biblically, then we have to consider what we believe. It's easy to say, well, I believe in God. 
I believe in the Bible. I believe in Jesus. And many, many churches and many, many Christians are content with just that. And they don't go a lot further. And that's leaving evangelical Christianity teetering between two real and present dangers. On the one hand, there's the possibility that we might define ourselves so specifically and so forcefully that we would isolate ourselves from just about everybody except for us and thereby limit our effectiveness in reaching the people of the world with the gospel. We can so define our beliefs so strictly, so forcefully that we isolate ourselves. That's a danger. But the other extreme is just as dangerous because it would be possible then that we would define our beliefs so broadly and so casually that we lose our biblical identity and even more importantly, our gospel orthodoxy. You see, Galatians chapter 1 is still in Scripture. And that's where Paul said, in case you're not familiar with it, uh, Paul said, uh, if any man preach unto you any other gospel than what you've received. And he even went so far as to say, though I, even if I come back to you and, and I preach something different than I preached to you before. Something's happened to me, Paul said, if I lose my mind, if something happens and I were to come back to you and preach a different gospel. If an angel from heaven came to you preaching a different gospel. Let him be accursed. Anathema is the Greek word, accursed. You treat him like an accursed one, a cursed thing. We draw a strong line on the gospel of Jesus Christ, and rightly so. Our fellowship, you see, with other Christians and our fellowship with other churches is in the gospel. Throughout all of history, the gospel is so simple that nobody has ever tried to take anything away from it. There's not anything to take away. What do you do? You understand that you're a sinner. You understand you can't save yourself. You believe then on the Lord Jesus Christ and his death on the cross was his burial, his resurrection then becomes yours. You call upon the name of the Lord and you are saved eternally. (laughs) That's the simple truth of the gospel. As Jesus said it, you must be born again. It's so simple, you see. That the effort has always been to change the gospel on the other end by adding things to it, not taking away from it. And there are a plethora of things in the Christian world today that have been added to the gospel. Of course, many want to add what you saw today, baptism. So that with their, in their purview, and there's many of them, whether it's as an infant when you're uh, uh, so-called baptized, we don't uh, agree with that, that ba- sprinkling is not baptism. The word baptized in the New Testament means to immerse. That's all it ever meant. That's what it meant then. It's what it means today. Uh, but regardless of, of when it occurs, there are many, many people who think that act of putting you under the water then washes your sins away. It doesn't. I can explain that to you as easily and as simply as it is possible for me to explain it by reciting to you again a verse that I've already quoted this morning. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Folk, if the blood of Jesus Christ has cleansed you from all sin, there's nothing left for the water to wash away. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanseth us from all sin. 
and all kinds of things beyond that. Uh, for, you know, uh, the other uh, ordinance often called a sacrament of the communion or the Lord's Supper. All these different kinds of works. Uh, many people want to add various gifts of the Spirit, especially speaking in tongues. Uh, you're not really saved, some say, until you do that. All kinds of things have been added to the gospel and so for us, we identify ourselves uh, not only in our biblical identity, but through the gospel orthodoxy. Folks, we preached the old gospel of Jesus Christ the old way. We want to preach it just like Paul preached it. And under that serious warning in Galatians chapter 1 then, we, we don't fellowship with other groups, other churches who might not preach the gospel or who don't preach the gospel the same way we do. What does that mean, Brother Rich? You don't believe those people are, are saved or going to heaven. Listen, Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men unto me. And any time that, that Jesus Christ is presented, any time the cross of Jesus Christ is put before people, people can hear that message, come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, understand that they're lost, and they'll be saved. So no, we don't, we don't go so far as to... Uh, try to say that all the other people and all the other groups are lost. I, I wouldn't say that. Um, but I will say that they're a part of a group of people or a church that has lost its gospel orthodoxy. And that can happen. And it happens when we define our beliefs so broadly and so casually as if we say, well, it doesn't matter. I remember a conversation I had with a dear old man. He's gone on to glory now. I loved him. I loved him. But he asked me one time, he said, Preacher, what do you think about soap? He said. Well, I didn't understand exactly what he thought. I said, I like it. I use it. <laughs> and he was quick to point out, you know, well, there's ivory soap and there's dove soap and, and, and there's laundry soap and there's, there's dishwashing soap. And, but he said, you know, it's all soap. It's all the same thing. Now, the point, of course, you're probably getting, jumping ahead of me. The point he was trying to make was, you know, uh, that it doesn't matter. You know, there's all kinds of different things being preached. It doesn't matter. Uh, you know, people believe different things, but they're all going to get to heaven eventually. That was kind of the point he was trying to make. I had to disagree with that. I did it as lovingly as I could, and we remained friends. But there's only one gospel. There's only one way to be saved. And Paul made that very clear in Galatians chapter 1. So gospel orthodoxy is something that we take very seriously. But that's only one aspect of it. There's also our biblical identity. And that comes down to what we believe. It was just a pinch of incense on an altar once a year. Just a pinch of incense on an altar once a year. The Romans, you see, were a very tolerant government. We don't think of them that way. But in their day and time, they were because they kind of felt like as long as you paid your taxes, they were big on that. You didn't cause conflict or insurrection or trouble. They were really big on that. You do what we tell you to do. They were big on that. You don't rebel. Oh, that was a big one. 
But if you did those things, then they kind of felt like you could worship whatever gods or goddesses you chose. And especially those that were known in antiquity, they knew the Jewish God, for example. They knew it. They didn't like the Jews' religion. Uh, circumcision was abhorrent to them. They didn't like it, but they recognized that the Jews had been worshiping God, Jehovah, Yahweh, for generations and eons. And so they didn't attack Judaism. Why then was there such a terrible persecution against Christians by the Romans? What was so unique about Christianity We can see that play out in Acts chapter 19 where Paul was at Ephesus and his companions were working throughout Asia, the province of Asia, modern Turkey. After he had been there for a while, the silversmith guild noticed that their business had dropped off dramatically. Now you can tell, folk, when revival has come to town, when people who are trafficking on the other side of the aisle start noticing that their business has dropped off. Now, we can talk all we want to about revival, but when you have a revival that closes down all the bars and liquor stores, now, you've had a revival, amen? You understand? Man, after our business is gone. Nobody, man. Well, that was kind of what happened in Ephesus. The silversmiths, you see, made uh, little shrines of Diana for people to buy. People came from all over the Roman Empire to worship at the temple, the shrine of Diana. And that uh, meteorite that supposedly fell from heaven that they enshrined as her image and likeness. And so they made their living, they made their living, their livelihood on things relating to the worship of Diana. After a while, they called a meeting. And it's recorded in Acts chapter 19, verse 26. Moreover, you see and hear that not alone at Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, this Paul hath persuaded and turned away much people, saying that they be no gods which are made with hands, so that not only this our craft is in danger to be set at naught, but also that the temple of the great goddess Diana should be despised and her magnificence should be destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. And when they heard these sayings, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. People began to hear the uproar, and a crowd was formed, and a mob filled the Colosseum. Christians were there. Paul saw it was happening, and he was going to rush into that Colosseum full of a mob screaming, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And they had to hold him back. How would you like to be one that had to hold back the Apostle Paul? He was going to go in there fired up. He probably wouldn't have survived. They knew it. But the mob was quelled. No bloodshed. People lost some property. They took security. And they took some of their money. Let them go. You might think after you read that passage, since the mob was quelled and Paul didn't die and the others didn't die, you would think that maybe the opposition to Christianity stopped. It did not. It intensified and always for the same reasons. You see, Christians honored no God but the one God. They bowed before only one king. His name was Jesus. The persecution of Christians under the Roman Emperor Nero is well known. Others would follow. 
It would be toward the end of the second century, though, before an official act of the Roman government was passed and began then to sanction officially and enforce officially by the full power of the Roman state the eradication of the Christian faith, starting with their leaders, burning their scriptures. Uh, You might hear about the council that came together and canonized the New Testament, and a lot of people try to make a lot of hay over that these days. But the fact is, Diocletian, under his rule, the Bibles were burned and destroyed by the thousands. And so it became these men's task to go back and pull up those ancient scriptures. And they had a lot of different uh, books to choose from. It was their task then to find out which one of them had been quoted and which ones of them had had been in use since the days of the apostles. They did a great job, by the way. And the canon of Scripture is what is there. That was Diocletian. In the city of Smyrna, the Dia Roma goddess had been established uh, about 150 years before Christ. But by the time of the New Testament era then... Uh, her cult was flourishing. She was, in effect, a deification of Rome and the Roman government. She's usually depicted uh, with a spear in one hand, a helmeted lady, uh, Dia Roma. By the end of the second century then, especially in Smyrna, which was kind of the headquarters of that whole cult, uh, they had established then a deification of Rome and the Roman government. Once a year, they proclaimed a feast in her honor, and all of the citizens were required to offer a pinch of incense on the altar in honor of Dia Roma. They had to then, once they did that, they'd receive her certificate that had to be renewed every year held their citizenship as uh, intact. Their property then could not be confiscated. They wouldn't be put in prison, persecuted. That was in Smyrna. If you read in Revelation chapter 2, Jesus would write these people a letter. Jesus would write these people a letter. Revelation 2.10 Do not fear any of those things which you're about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. That you may be tested and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. It was just a pensive incense. On an altar. Offered then to show and essentially your loyalty to the state. Your submission to the state and its religion. It was just a pinch of incense. But true to what Jesus said, many of them would end up in prison. Many of them would lose property. Many of them, especially the religious leaders, would end up suffering martyrdom. Especially in Smyrna. Just a pinch of incense. I bring this up to you today because biblical Christianity runs up against cultural trends and militant ideology in many, many places today. 
Uh, I promised you last week that we'd talk some about our statement of faith. And again, I'll remind you, our statement of faith is easily available to you at faithcabot.org. I'd encourage you to look at it. I'm not going to preach the whole thing. But I did look around at a lot. Again, I've done this many times. I, I spent some time, again, looking at other churches and their statements of faith. And I found many of them to be incredibly vague, very short. It was difficult to find references to creation, to the family, to the role of women and other gender issues, or the future of the planet, <laughs> the return of Christ. I mean, those things were notably absent uh, from most doctrinal statements that I looked at. You see, these are the areas where the Christian faith finds itself most at odds with today's culture, and the tension is escalating. I'm here today to just tell you straight up, Eyeball to eyeball, as it were, straight up. But sooner or later, probably sooner, we're all going to face our own incense on the altar moment. We are. Will we stand at that moment for our biblical faith? If it's going to cost us our job, if it's going to cost us our career, it's going to cost us our business, our liberty, our property. Let me answer that question for you. No, we will not. No, we will not pass that test. Unless we know what we believe clearly and biblically. We have to know what we believe and why we believe it and be able to then answer that question biblically, whatever it may be. Now, we don't have an exhaustive list published on our website, but uh, these are things that we refer to as basic truths and things that certainly make us biblical Christians. And I want to run through these things quickly for you. We begin with our statement of the Holy Bible. Of course we do. That the Bible is inspired, inerrant, and authoritative in all matters of faith and practice. Specifically, we say the following. We believe that the Holy Bible was written by men divinely inspired and is a perfect treasure of heavenly instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. It reveals the principles by which God will judge us and therefore us. And it shall remain then to the end of the world the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard by which all Human conduct, creeds, and opinions should be tried. All Scripture bears witness to Jesus. Amen. The supreme authority in all matters of faith is the Scriptures of the Old and New Testament. We do not continue, though, to practice the law of Moses. I'll put that caveat in. Romans chapter 10 and verse 4 says it very plainly. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That's about as simple as it gets. So no, we don't keep the Old Testament law. The New Testament, though, is full of references to the Old Testament. And it's impossible to understand the New Testament without understanding what it replaced, the Old Testament. We don't go back to the law of Moses to establish our faith and practice, the truth of the teachings of Jesus recorded by the apostles and interpreted in the epistles. 
provides for us the truth we need to regulate our beliefs and the kind of life that we live. This is one of the great dividing lines in our world today. The authority of Scripture. I wish I could tell you today that across Christianity we are standing strong for the authority of Scripture. But I can't tell you that. Many, many people are turning away from living by the authority of Scripture and substituting in its place cultural trends. But the apostles said it best for us long ago in Acts chapter 5. We ought to obey God rather than men. <laughs> Amen. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Our statement then progresses to what the scriptures teach us and begins with God and his existence in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as the creator and supreme ruler of heaven and earth. That he reveals himself in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, equal in every divine perfection. God then is our creator and the sovereign ruler of heaven and earth. How controversial is that? Well, I hope it's not very controversial at all here in this setting, but... uh, You know as well as I do that out in the world we live in, it is very, very controversial. The next statement is about humanity or mankind, man, and how God created man in his image and made them male and female. It teaches us then about the fall of man and God's great plan of redemption, which leads naturally to the truth of salvation, telling us how that Christ died for sinners and that all sinners can be saved. The doctrinal statement then moves from there to the eternal nature of salvation so that we understand that once we are saved, we can never be unsaved. That's called, in our jargon, the perseverance of the saints, that all true believers will persevere. And that once you're saved, you'll never be unsaved. It speaks then of baptism and the Lord's Supper, reminding us that neither of them are effective for our salvation. It speaks of the kingdom of Christ and his soon return to the earth. And it speaks of the future of the earth and how that Jesus Christ is going to bring it to its appropriate end, as he said. It makes statements about the future world to come. It makes a point about evangelism and missions and our part in that, of the need for Christian stewardship, for where a man's treasury is, there will his heart be also, Jesus said. Speaks of religious liberty and liberty of conscience, and how we believe that uh, every person, every every church, then should have uh, the right to determine what they believe, free from governmental interference. One of our longest statements is about the family, including a clear and unambiguous statement about marriage. God has ordained the family as the foundational institution of human society. It is composed of persons related to one another by marriage, blood, or adoption. Marriage is the uniting of one man and one woman in covenant commitment for a lifetime. Any sexual relation outside of the marriage of one man and one woman is sin. If you need more information, you can check out the accompanying scripture references There, as always, there are many. 
Doctrines are divisive. They always have been. But the response to division is not to believe in nothing. Not to so water down our beliefs that we could appeal to anybody. But instead to clarify what we believe and why and make sure it is grounded in solid biblical truth. Understanding that today the offense of the cross, that's what Paul called it. The offense of the cross And he made this very clear statement. He said, if I was out to please men, if that was my goal, my objective, he said, then would the offense of the cross cease. If I was out to please men, I would water the message down so that the message of the cross would not be so offensive. Why would that be a temptation? Because it was offensive then. It was offensive as Paul went out into that world of paganism and all the other missionaries went out into that world dominated by paganism and the worship of false God, preaching that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, born in Bethlehem, who lived a sinless life, died a substitutionary death, crucified on the cross by the Roman government, rose again. To give out then the message of salvation to everyone who believes. And that there is none other name given among men whereby we must be saved. Was that offensive? Yes. That's why they rioted in Ephesus. That's why they rioted almost everywhere Paul went. Somebody said Paul everywhere he went. He started a revival or a riot. That's not true. Everywhere he went he started a revival and a riot. Read the book of Acts. Very few places did he get out of unscathed. The offense of the cross is as real today as it's ever been. It's not going to go away. It's going to get worse. So I want to wrap up this morning very quickly with some warnings from the last books that Paul wrote. And it emphasizes the importance of a solid understanding of biblical truth. I'm going to read these. I'm not going to, I'm not going to preach on them. 1 Timothy 4, 1, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, and commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. The Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart. From the faith. 1 Timothy 6.20 Old Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science, falsely so-called, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. Grace be with thee. Amen. 2 Timothy 3.13 But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped, For every good work. These are great passages. 
See, Paul was deeply concerned about the world that Timothy would live his life in and conduct his service in and how that would try to affect his faith in Lord Jesus. I'm deeply concerned too. You can look at all the white hair you're seeing shining up in front of you this morning and know that, you know, my years are, are, growing, are growing short. God may give me a, a lot of more years, and if in, in his providence he does that, then thank you. I hope to spend them all preaching the gospel to God's people. But sooner or later, probably sooner, there's always going to be an incense on the altar moment. What is, is it going to be? You see, we don't, we don't get the opportunity to decide what's going to be on the test. I'm just going to tell you there will be a test. There will be a test. Our beliefs will be challenged. And we will only stand for what we truly believe in. We're not going to face ridicule, you see. The loss of a job, the loss of business, the loss of position, or even the loss of friends and the loss of popularity. We won't do it. Unless we know what we believe and why. And I wish I could promise you this morning that it's going to end well for all of us. But the Spirit speaks expressly that many, many are going to fail the test. It'll be easy to do. All it'll take is just drop out of church. Or find one to go to that uh, caves into all of the cultural norms. There's plenty of those around too. You know, most businesses these days have a, a DEI. That's a, you know what that is? Department of Equity and Inclusion. You're up for promotion. You get called in to the DEI and they ask you a few questions. Questions, by the way, they already know the answer to because they've been looking on your social media page. They already know you go to church at Faith Baptist. They already know then what our doctrinal statement is because they've read it. And they've probably listened to some of the sermons your pastor's preached. And that DEI guy looks you in the face and says, or lady, whichever one it might be. Now, I notice uh, you're a Christian and you go to a church that believes the Bible and has all these beliefs. And I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure we can... We can push you. We can promote you, put you in management. They say, well, preacher, it won't ever play out that way. You're exactly right. You're exactly right. You won't ever know probably why you got passed over for a promotion. You just will. You may not know why you got fired. You just will. Is that day coming? <laughs> it's already here. It's already here. Maybe not around Cabin America too much yet, but maybe more than we think. There will be a test. There will be a test. It's already coming. It's already here. Are we going to stand for what we believe? And the only way that we can answer that yes is if we know what we believe. And why? 
And the why that's going to work at that moment is not going to be because my preacher says, uh-uh. You're not going to die for what your preacher says. You're not going to go to jail for what your preacher says. Uh-uh. The answer is not going to be, well, my mama says. No, uh-uh. If you're going to stand for what you believe, you've got to know what you believe and why. And the why is that you can put your finger on that verse in the Bible or you can quote it because you know what it says. The Bible says this. I believe the Bible is God's word. And I'm going to live by it. And if necessary, die by it. We won't be alone. That's why Jesus said, Be thou faithful unto death, and I'll give unto thee the crown of life. Paul said, I want you to stand unrebukable, blameless before the Lord Jesus. And you can if you continue in the faith. Let's stand together, please.